0: I wanted to start out and tell a little bit of a story. And I want to tell this story and, and tell you it doesn't put me in a good light. And uh, you say, well, why, why do you share stories like this, Pastor Kevin? It's because I want you to understand when we look at Scripture, I want you to understand God speaks to me just as He speaks to anybody else. And, and when I'm looking at Scripture, man, uh, it seems like God just continues to point to me. On Kevin, you still have areas to grow. And so... A couple weeks ago, my family had the chance to go to Disneyland. And we're going to Disneyland, and each of the kids, they had the chance to, to choose a uh, souvenir to bring home with them. And My little Oliver, seven years old, and he says, Dad, I want to go to Build-A-Bear. I'm like, all right, we can go to Build-A-Bear, and we go to Build-A-Bear. And uh, first time you go to Build-A-Bear, it's kind of, time is a little bit short, so we're just kind of walking through, and he found the perfect bear. It was a Seahawks bear. Yeah. A Seahawks bear. So he goes and he sees this little bear and he sees the little skin of it. Now, I I just have to say, I'm really glad he chose that bear. Because if he would have chose a bear with different colors, like silver and blue, or green and yellow, or... You know, if he would have chose another color, like it would have been really sad for me to have to leave my seven-year-old in California when we at home. I'm glad he chose the right bear. So I said, all right, buddy, here's what we'll do. We'll come back tomorrow morning um, there won't be any lines and we can come and do it. So him and I, we get up early and we're going to go to, to build a bear before everybody else. And so we head off on our own and everybody else is going to meet us there later. And as we're walking to, to build a bear, there's a homeless person on the side of the road. We walk right past him. And Oliver looks up at me and says, hey dad, hey dad, do you ever feel bad for homeless people? I'm like, yeah, yeah, I do. Do you? And he's like, yeah, I think we should give him some money or buy him a house or something. Now, I did what any good parent would do. I said, man, I'm really glad that you feel sorry for this guy, but but let me tell you something about homeless people. You know, sometimes homeless people, you know, they have addictions, and when you give them money, they don't use the money for the good things, and so you kind of, and here I am. My son is showing compassion for a homeless guy, and because I have all this wisdom and knowledge, I'm lecturing him about what the right thing to do is and how you have to be cautious and 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 how all these different things you know some of you would say well Kevin that's just wisdom you're just giving wisdom to him about how to to, to, to be cautious with a homeless person but what I'm finding is I look at scripture I'm finding how oftentimes are in what we call wisdom how um, it's like an excuse for us to live opposite to actually what the bible and what jesus tells us how to live especially with the brokenness around us do you hear that our wisdom sometimes allows us to live contrary to the way that jesus has told us to live to the way the bible portrays us as christians to actually live and you say well why is that like, why do we have this this, this uh, contrarian attitude in our heart where, where we know what we should do, but, you know, we have all these other reasons why we don't go and do that? It's because all of us, we are born with a sinful heart. We're born with a, a nature inside of us that always makes it all about us. I mean, you know what I'm talking about. Like, we live in a way that the world revolves around us. Me, and I'm number one, and everything resolves around me. And so everything in the world is there to serve me, to, to make me happy, to do what I want to do. And, and we make it all about us. And so what happens is because we're so focused right here on me, we become blind to the things happening around us. And maybe we do this intentionally, maybe it's unintentional. But this is the human nature And this is why we get frustrated the way that we do. This is why we lose patience the way that we do, because we want life to be all about us. And honestly, most of us would just say, man, I wish my my, my spouse, I wish my co-workers, I wish my kids, I wish they would just get this and understand this. I wish the guy driving in front of me that's driving really slow, I wish they would understand, listen, life's all about me. If you just get out of my way and do what I want man, life's going to be so much better, right? Isn't that how we live? Now, we may not verbalize it, but isn't that how we actually live? And because we have this selfish nature to make life all about us, we become very individualized. Where I'm not going to seek the benefit of the whole, I'm only going to do what's good for me and what benefits me. So I only will focus on, on the outside, on, on everybody else, as long as there's a benefit for me. This is why, this is why we, don't, uh, we don't like to be friends with people who have differing opinions with us. Right? This is why we go to churches and, and we shop churches because we want the church that fits my preferences. I want the church that does ministry the way I want it to be done. I want a church that plays the songs that I like to sing right? Because who does the world revolve around? Revolves around me. In fact, when we're a part of an organization, when we feel like our input is no longer valued, when we feel like like, like people don't listen to me, what do we do? We leave. We're like, I'm done with this place. Because the world is supposed to revolve around me. And because of that, we become individualized. Where I'm not going to seek the good of other people unless there's a specific benefit for me. So here's what we're going to do. If you have a Bible today, I'm going to ask you to get your Bible out. I'm going to ask you to do something different. I'm going to ask you to open to the table of contents. Uh, In your Bible, if you open to the first couple of pages, there's this great tool that God has given us. Okay, maybe it's not God. Maybe it's whoever put it together for us. This one has to be Crossway. Uh, Who gives us something called the table of contents. All right. The reason I'm asking you to turn to the table of contents is we're going to look at a book today called Nehemiah. I'm going to start a series looking at the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is, is sometimes a book that's sometimes hard to find in the Bible. So I want you to understand, hey, if you're, not, if you're not comfortable, you don't know where the Bible is, listen, there's no shame or awkwardness in you having to look to see where the book of the Bible is. You're in the Bible. That's, I'm excited for. There's no shame in that. So in your, in your uh, table of contents, look for the book of Nehemiah should be the 16th book of the Old Testament. And find where that is and go ahead and turn to there in your Bible. Today we're starting a new series um, on the book of Nehemiah. If you don't know enough about Nehemiah, here's a little synopsis. Nehemiah um, is going to be a leader who's going to lead the people to the city of Jerusalem to rebuild the walls. The walls of the city have been torn down. Jeremiah's going to lead the people to rebuild the walls. And then he's going to lead the people to experience revival. To, to come back to the heart of God, to be the people of God. And so really it's a book about uh, rebuilding, about restoring, about revival. And, and you say, well, here's why we chose the book of Nehemiah for our church. It's because I love the season that we are in as a church. I love the season that we are in as a church. And I anticipate big things are coming. This is what I'm, as I look and I'm saying, God, help me understand. I see big things coming for our church. And this is where we've been able to bring Jacob on. We spent time uh, working and focusing on on, on systems, on on building systems. So that way, uh, that's kind of like the walls. We want to build the walls of the church, the foundation, the systems in place. So that way God can bring revival. So that God can do something tremendous in our mix. And I believe that's what we're on the cusp of right here at Restoration Church. So that's why we're going to look at Nehemiah and say, God, would you help us all to catch that vision of what it looks like to bring revival into a church and into a city? And as we look at Nehemiah chapter 1 today, this is going to speak into our, our, our sinful human nature. Nehemiah chapter 1 is going to fly in the face of how we want to make life all about me. About how we want to be individualized and just focus on what benefits me. And we're going to see from Nehemiah chapter 1 that as Christians, that we are to put the will of God and the heart of God above everything about us. That our preferences, that our opinions, that our wisdom becomes secondary to the heart and the will of God. And that's what we're going to see today. As we open up the book of Nehemiah, I do want to just give a little bit of a background so you understand the context of of where Nehemiah is writing. If you were to look at the Old Testament, um, Nehemiah should actually come in the end uh, chronologically of the Old Testament. The Old Testament is not put together chronologically. It's put towards genres. You've got the the, uh, different genres put together. But in fact, uh, the books of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, they all fit towards the end of the chronological History of the Old Testament, and so to understand ne- Nehemiah, you've got to understand a little bit about Israel. And so Israel, we know that in Exodus that they were slaves in Egypt. You know the story uh, how about uh, about how uh, there's two million slaves that are or two million Israelites that are slaves in Egypt. And remember, God calls Moses, and Moses goes and says, "Let my people go." And Pharaoh says, "No." And Moses says, "Let my people go." Eventually, God leads the Israelites out of slavery of Egypt. He redeems them. Brings them out of Egypt, takes them to the Red Sea, to the cusp of the Red Sea. And God parts the waters, and two million Israelites walk through on dry land to the other side. And and then the waters uh, engulf the the Egyptian armies. Uh, God leads them to the outskirts of what's called the Promised Land. This is a land that God had promised them many, many, many years before. A place that they could have their own, that they could become a nation. He takes them to uh, the outskirts of that land. And at that point, Israel, they doubted the goodness of God. They doubted the grace of God. They doubted the power of God. And so uh, God causes them to wander for 40 years in the wilderness uh, for a new generation to rise up, a generation that would not doubt God, uh, a nation that would know of God's power and his grace. So God, uh, through Joshua, he leads the Israelites into the promised land. You know the story of Joshua where, where God drives out all the enemies, God drives out all the inhabitants and gives the land to Israel. And there was a there was a covenant that God made with them and said, here's, here's what's going to happen. If you are faithful to me, if you're faithful to God, then you are going to have this land forever. I will be your God. I will protect you. I'll make sure that you're safe. But listen, if you are unfaithful to me, If you are unfaithful to God, I will drive you out of this land. And and, and you are going to face my wrath. That's what happens if you're unfaithful. Well, as history goes, Israel divides into two nations, a north and a south. The northern kingdom was conquered in 722 by the Assyrians and sent into exile. Why? Because they no longer were faithful to God generation after generation, was unfaithful to God. And so God allowed the Assyrians to come in and and, and conquer the land and send uh, the northern kingdom into exile. Southern kingdom fared a little bit better. They had a couple of good kings and a couple of bad kings, but eventually they all became unfaithful to God. And so in, in 587, God allowed uh, Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar to come in and conquer Israel, conquer the southern kingdom, conquer Jerusalem, and sent Uh, the Israelites all into exile. And that's where we pick up in Nehemiah chapter 1. Because Babylon becomes conquered by the Persians. And now the Persians are the ones that are in charge. And that's where we're going to pick up in Nehemiah chapter 1. Before we read, though, I'm going to ask you just to join me in a word of prayer. God, I just want to thank you for who you are. Thank you for the privilege of being a part of Restoration Church. And God, just thank you for what you're doing in our midst. For each of us here today, God, I pray that you would give us uh, just an understanding of who you are today. That you help us to see, God, what it is you want to show us from your word. God, that you help us to see, God, that you are trying to do something beautiful and amazing right here. And God, I pray that you just help us to, whatever's going on this week, that we would come in and set that aside and you allow your spirit to rest on us, to draw us deeper in love with you. That we would know you and make you known. Help us to understand the words we're about to hear. Help us to understand we're here not listening to a pastor give his opinion. But God, this is your word. God, we love you and we praise you and we ask this in your name. Amen. Nehemiah chapter 1, you can follow along in your Bible, or if you have a phone. Uh, The words will also be on the screen behind me. And here's how it starts out. It says, the words of Nehemiah, the son of uh, Hakaliah. Now what you're going to find is when he says the words of Nehemiah, uh, much of the book of Nehemiah, (coughs) excuse me, is the uh, journal of Nehemiah. He's just writing a journal, writing, this is what happened. There's going to be some other voices that speak into it. Uh, There's a section that... Ezra probably uh, put together out of the writings of Nehemiah. But this is basically a journal for Nehemiah. So as you read it, you understand Nehemiah is telling you this is what happened. It says, now, uh, it happened in the month of Chislev. This is the ninth month of the Jewish calendar. This would be what we would consider November or December. He says, in the ninth month of Chislev, and the 20th year, the 20th year of the reign of King uh, Artaxerxes, uh, uh, which would have been, this time about around 445 B.C. He says, I was in Susa the Citadel. This is the capital city, um, modern day Iran. He says, Now it happened in the month of Chislev, the 20th year, that I was in Susa the Citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came uh, came from certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and who had survived the exile concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The remnant, this is the remaining people in Jerusalem, they're in the province province who have survived the exile. They are in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Now we're going to find in the book of Nehemiah, the walls are a big deal. I mean, this is a big deal to deal with the walls. You say, well, what's the big deal about having walls around a city? Again, you've got to understand, this is many, 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 many years ago. And the walls of a city brought protection for them. The walls allowed a way to keep, uh, keep enemies out, to keep anybody who would come and, and cause harm to them. In fact, without walls, any group that wanted to come in and, and, and pillage and plunder and steal, man, they could come and do that and they could escape any way that was possible. But if there is walls, there is a way for that city to, to funnel people a certain direction so they could protect themselves. In fact, to understand what it looks like for a city not to have walls, Proverbs deals with this idea. Proverbs says in chapter 25, it says, a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. Picture a man without self-control it gives you idea of what it looks like to have a, a, a city with no walls. They can't control their own affairs. They are left to other devices. Constantly moving around and being being betrayed by all sorts of things. In fact, these walls, uh, during this time of exile, these walls have tried to be rebuilt a number of times. People have tried to rebuild it only to have failure upon failure. And, and, and the report from Nehemiah, the report that Nehemiah got about what's happening in, in, in Jerusalem wasn't just about the walls being broken down. Remember, it said that the people were in great shame. See, this is God 's chosen people, and you picture them being in this environment where you 've got the city that is, is torn down, the walls are, are torn down, uh, an environment of, of poverty and violence. And the assumption is that those, those faithful Israelites who are still in Jerusalem, man, they've probably got to give in to some of that debauchery just to survive. And so it's really, it's kind of a dire report that Nehemiah gets. Here's what's happened. The walls are torn down. The people are in shame. Something I forgot to mention that I think is important. Who's Nehemiah? Like, who's this guy that we're hearing his journal from? In fact, if you look at the very last line of, of chapter, chapter 1, it says, Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king. A cupbearer, this is a cupbearer's job. They were. Uh, they, were uh, they would choose the, uh, and they would taste the wine uh, and the drinks and the food that would be presented to the king to demonstrate to the king that it wasn't po- uh, poisoned. Now, a cupbearer would have been a, a, a high official in the king's court. This would have been uh, someone who had frequent access to the king. This would have been a guy, you think about what a king eats and drinks. This would have been a guy who, who who eats the finest food, who drinks the best wine. I mean, he has a position of authority and influence and probably a position of, of wealth. He's got great access to the king, to talk to the king because he's always with him. And if we can understand a little bit about our human nature. Remember, our human nature says we want to make life all about me. But man, Nehemiah is in a pretty good position, right? I mean, he's got a great job, he's got authority, he's got he's got wealth, I and mean, he's a sweet spot. He's 800 miles from the city of Jerusalem. He just doesn't have to hear about what's going on, he doesn't see it every day. There's no newspaper to read, there's no news articles online, there's no uh, 5 o'clock news to say this is what's happening in Jerusalem. He's just there doing his thing, being productive, being uh, feeling like, man, God is blessing me. But here's what's intriguing. Because when Nehemiah hears that report, hey, the people are in great shame, the walls are torn down. This is his response. Verse 4. He says, As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and I wept, and I mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Now see, if I put myself in Nehemiah's shoes, man, I'm, I'm living a good life right now. Like, I'm like, man, God, you're blessing me. Look at all that's going for me. I'm in a great spot, man. I, I might even go to church on Sunday just to praise God because he's blessing me. I might, I might give God 10% because God's blessing me. And my life is so good right now. I mean, most of us would say, man, I'm, I'm happy with where I am. I'm going to focus on my family. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to serve the king. Man, God is good. But that's not the way that Nehemiah responds. There's this incredible compassion and empathy that comes over Nehemiah, that drops Nehemiah to his knees, and brings him to tears over people 800 miles away he's never met. The question is, Nehemiah's response, is this something that's descriptive or prescriptive? Let me tell you what those two different words means. Sometimes you approach scripture and you read the Bible and it's something that is descriptive. It's telling you a story. It's telling you about history. This is just so you know what happened. That's descriptive text. A prescriptive text means you and I are supposed to learn from this and do this as well. And so the question is, is Nehemiah's response, do you think it's descriptive or prescriptive? Is it just telling us this is what happened? Or is God trying to say, hey, you and I are to have a response like Nehemiah. That we're to have have compassion and empathy for the brokenness of the people around us. I'll tell you what, this text is prescriptive. The expectation that God would have is if we are a Christian, if you are a Christian, that you and I are to be bothered by the brokenness and by the suffering around us. So we are to have empathy for people that we may not even know, but we know their situation. And we are are, are brought to tears and, and brought to compassion to actually do something about it. See, as a Christian, when we are following Christ, no longer are we consumed with ourself. No longer do we make this life all about me that everything has to revolve around me. No longer are we individualistic. When we are truly a Christian and following after God, God's will and the heart of God become our, our, our primary focus. And our preferences, and our worries, and our cares, and our opinions, they become secondary to God's will and to God's heart. See, Nehemiah, he's allowed God's will to be his number one thing in his life. And he hears something that breaks God's heart. He hears something that isn't right. And his heart breaks over that. It drops into his knees Causes him to weep before God and cry out to him. You say, well, how, how do I know that's the will of God? Like, 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 okay, it's supposed to be descriptive. I'm supposed to be like Nehemiah. But, but how do I know the, the, the heart of God, the will of God? I've got a couple verses I just want to run through with you. And I want you to hear these. Because they're going to give you a picture of what it means for you and I to, to, to understand the heart of God. Zechariah chapter 7 says... The word of the Lord came to Zechariah, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another one in your heart. See, that is a picture of the heart of God. That as Christians, no longer are we inward focused about having the world revolve around me, about trying to make my life better right now. We instead become outwardly focused. Where we can love one another. We can serve one another. We can fight against oppression. We can care deeply for the weakest members of our society. See who he described as the weakest members of our society? The widow. The fatherless. The sojourner. You know who that is? That's the alien. The stranger. The impoverished. This is the heart of God. A a compassion for those people to do something about them. Is that what our Christianity looks like? In fact, like when you come to church, you know, you say, well, how's it going? Like, what are we really asking? Well, how are you with the Lord? Like, are you holy or are you not holy? Like, are you struggling or are you not struggling? But do you see, that's not the way that that the saints of of the Bible really portrayed. There wasn't an inward focus about how are you doing, it's it's an outward focus about, man, I'm going to be focused on on the hurting around me and the people around me. A couple other verses. uh, Looking at the idea of social justice. Isaiah 1, chapter 17 says, Learn to do good. Seek justice and correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless plead the widow's cause. Micah 6.8 says, he has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? To do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with our God. This is what the Lord requires of us. To do justice, to, to, to love kindness, to walk humbly with our God. As Christians, we are to, to stand up for injustice. We are to correct the oppression of the people around us. In fact, I think it's been intriguing the last couple of years. One of the things you've seen blow up uh, and, and become more aware is the issue of the sex trade. You see people standing up and say, these girls that are being sucked into the sex trade, this is wrong. And you finally, now you begin to see Christians saying, we're going to stand up against this. This is not right. This is exactly what the church is supposed to do. Look at the injustice around us and say, I'm not going to just stand by and let this happen. But because I follow God, because his heart breaks for that, that breaks my heart too, and I'm going to do something about it. A couple other verses. Deuteronomy chapter 16 says, Every man shall give as he is able, according to the blessing of the Lord your God, that he has given to you. See, this flies in the face of our selfishness. The flies in the face of our individualism where it's all about me. Because typically what happens for us is when God blesses us, what do we do? We hoard it. We build bigger barns. When God blesses us, we upgrade. And then we upgrade again. And then we upgrade again. We continue to upgrade. But when you, when you understand what that verse just told us, that, that, that when God blesses us, that it's him who gave it all to us. That he doesn't just own the 10%, but God owns all 100% of it. And he instead and saying, he says we are stewards of his blessings. See, it's not bad for us to have nice things. But it's bad when we fail to understand that what we have is a blessing from God. It has been given to you from God. And as a blessing from God, that's supposed to flow out towards the purposes of God. Again, this is where the will of God becomes primary in my life. And my preferences and my desires become secondary to the will of God. Matthew chapter 7, golden rule says, So whatever you wish others to do for you, do also for them. For this is the law and the prophets. Is there any greater verse for us to understand the heart of God? This means that when you and I, when we see that homeless dude, when we see that family in poverty, when we hear about those that are suffering from catastrophes all around us, when we hear about those suffering because of the hurricanes, that we think if I was in that situation, if that was me, what would I want someone to do for me? How would I want them to encourage me? How do I want them to talk to me? See, so you put yourself in that situation, and then you do that. The way that you want someone to do something for you, you go and do that. That's what Jesus just said. One more verse, Galatians chapter 6. says, bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. See, am I my brother's keeper? Yes. Yes, you are. There's a, a type of radical compassion and, and empathy that a Christian is supposed to have, particularly to the people of God. This is the way, this should be one of the marks of how we live with one another. That we bear one another's burdens. That when a brother or sister in Christ, when they're suffering, when they're going through a hard time, we don't just, oh, I feel sorry for you. But we bear that burden in ourselves, And we do something about that. See, this idea, I want you to capture the heart of God. Because as a Christian community, we reflect the world around us who God is. And the heart of God. We reflect the will of God to the people around us. And I'm seeing the, the heart of God being compassion and empathy and love. But is that what the world sees from the church today? See, when we are... Brought to the face of suffering and hardship and brokenness and poverty. Why don't we respond like Nehemiah? When that homeless person comes on the side of the road, why don't we respond like Nehemiah? And be broken for them. And want to do something for them. Instead of saying, well, I I got all the answers and I'm not going to help you because I know you're going to waste it. When is the last time, when's the last time that you wept? Because the situation that somebody else is going through that you don't even know them. You just put yourself on their shoes and say, you know what? I feel this empathy, this connection. See, even as Christians, even though we've given our life to Jesus, we still are consumed with ourselves. We're consumed with our families. We're consumed with with our own lives. And as Christians, we put these blinders up to the suffering around us, to to the hard things around us. And even when we're exposed, like like I was with Ollie, we have justifications about why we're not going to do something. That's not the right thing. I I can't help this homeless person out because they're just going to waste it. And we have all these reasons as to why we don't engage in the hurting and the broken around us. Or we, we begin to have good intentions. We're, we're, we're living our life and we see this brokenness and, you know, I, I'm going to do something about this. We never do. Good intentions aren't good enough. The worst thing we can do is be indifferent to the suffering of those around us. Or we can understand, man, there's people going through a hard time right now. Doesn't bother me. It doesn't affect me. In fact, I'm I i was not sure if I was going to bring this up today, but I'm going to, to bring this up. Think about what's happening in our society. Conversation I heard more this week than any other conversation was the NFL protests. About the NFL players that are protesting um, uh, the the national anthem. Now I I don't want to get into a political argument 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 with anybody here today. This is a a touchy subject. In fact, as you look at what's being put on Facebook and you you have the conversations around the water cooler, man, there's a lot of heated feelings and comments and opinions about what those guys are doing. The question I want to ask you, as a Christian, as a Christian who's supposed to have compassion and empathy for the injustices happening around us, for the people that are suffering, what are you actually doing for the urban minorities in our country who are struggling through racism? Because I'll tell you what, we can all stand in our soapbox and say, it's so wrong for those NFL players to, to, to uh, protest the national anthem. And you know what we're doing? We're standing on the sidelines. We're not doing anything about the situation. We're just saying, you're wrong because of what you're doing. while these people are still struggling and suffering. Now let me clarify, I think the way they're doing it is wrong. I'm, I'm patriotic, and I think it's wrong for them to, to take the knee and to, to not participate in the national anthem. But I'll tell you what, what am I doing about that cause? What am I doing about racism in my country? Because I'm going to guess there's a lot of us that have all these strong opinions about how wrong it is, but what are we as Christians actually doing about the injustice and the suffering around us? You see, it's easy for us to point our fingers and say, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. But as Christians, who should be the ones that are doing anything about that? It shouldn't be the NFL players. It should be Christians who understand the heart of God. Where God would say, if there's an injustice, Christians have a responsibility to do something about it. When we become a Christian, our focus has to change from being consumed about ourselves and being consumed about our life and our opinions to allowing god's will to be our primary focus and it forces us to look beyond ourselves to see those that are suffering to see those that are weak and impoverished to see those that are are, are struggling and are facing injustice And if we're really going to embrace the heart of God, our first step will always be grace. Our first step should always be grace. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew 25, he said, come, come, I have a kingdom prepared for you. He said, when I was hungry, you fed me. He said, when I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. He said, when I was a stranger, you welcomed me. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was sick, you visited me. When I was in prison, you came to me. They said, well, Jesus, when do we do these things? You remember what Jesus said? He said, Surely I say to you, as you did it to one of these, the least of my brothers, you have done it unto me. Is that what your Christianity looks like? Is that what our Christianity looks like? Compassion, love, grace, empathy. To enter into somebody else's story. To try and make right what's gone wrong. I think too many times our Christianity looks like this. It looks like don't smoke, don't chew, don't go with girls who do. We make make what we are against what our Christianity is all about. Instead of, listen, this is what we are for. As Christians. As I think about our church. Think about where God is leading us. Listen I'm not satisfied just doing church. I'm not. I'm not satisfied just surviving as a church. I want to be at a part of a church. That desires to see lives changed. Desires to see revival desires to see our city changed. And we look at this idea of Nehemiah about rebuild and reform and and revive. Listen, that requires that. If we're going to see that in our city, if we're going to see that in our church, requires us to no longer be consumed with just the things that benefit me, but to see the people around us. To notice what's happening around us. That we would wade into lives of other people that are struggling. People we might disagree with. But that we would wade into their lives out of compassion and out of love. Because that's what God would do. That we don't just see a problem. But we actually have a desire to do something about it. Because isn't this what we do? We see a problem in the church. We see a problem in our community. Oh, that's for somebody else to deal with. No. No. If we're going to rebuild and reform and revive and and see something great happening, it requires all of us not just to see the problem, but to say, you know what, Lord, would you use me to to do something about this? Listen, there are some areas in our church that we do this really well. Some areas I think we could grow in. Think about Gary Tibbetts. Gary, I didn't ask permission to say this, but I'm going to use you anyways. It's been tremendous to watch uh, Gary come in uh, a couple years ago. Struggling through, through life, through addiction. And trying to figure out, man, how do I follow God? And I've got the, all these things warring inside my soul. And we have the opportunity Thursday to watch Gary graduate from the New Life program of the Union Gospel Mission. There has been a commitment on our church to walk alongside Gary. To love Gary, sometimes when he runs his mouth. Sometimes when he does things that we wouldn't agree with. But listen, we have compassion and empathy and say, man, I love you, brother. I'm with you. And I'm with you for the long haul. That is what we're talking about here. That we would wade into that story and say, man, I'm with you. I'm for you. And I will walk the battles alongside you. I think think about single parents. Man, my wife's been gone this week. And normally, we, we got five kids, and normally we, we run like a zone defense, you know, where you cover a couple, these kids still some, sometimes get open. But man, like this that past couple days has been crazy. Like, I don't, I don't know how single parents do it. Single parents, man, those are the people that we need to give crowns to, because of the amazing work that they do. As a church, do we notice that lady that comes in on her own with the kids? we notice that person who has to wear all these hats to try and keep their family afloat? And those are the kind of people that we should have empathy for and say, let me wade into your story and let me help and bless. And I know our wisdom says, well, we don't know why they're single. Maybe they have, no, no. We lead with grace and love and compassion. Man, let me tell you, there's a little bit of a risk in that. Because when we wade into somebody else's story, there's a risk of, what if I get hurt? What if they abuse me? What if they hurt me? I've not even been in the situation where you have this compassion for somebody, but you have this fear. Man, I got hurt before. I want to get hurt again. Think about the example of Jesus. Jesus went to the cross. He paid the penalty for your sin. He paid the penalty for my sin. And you know what I was doing while he paid my penalty? I was continuing to reject him. Saying, sure, Jesus, you paid for my sin, and I'm going to add more. And I'm going to keep disobeying you. And he was rejected and rejected and rejected, and he still gave his life. And that is the example for us, that we would pour out our lives as an offering for the people around us. This is what it means for us to be the people of God. That we would have this empathy and this compassion to wade into the lives of other people to to correct what's gone wrong, to bless and to, to give grace and to give love. And this is where I'm at. As I hear this, I hear about the heart of God. I hear how my heart's supposed to be broken for the things that break the heart of God. Think, well, how, how do I how do I grow in that? Because I, I get it, I, I get it. This is what God is all about. This is His heart. But too many times it's like me when I was walking to build a bear, and and it's hard for me to grasp. Like, how do I how do I grow in this? How do I become? How do I know the heart of God? And how does that grow in me? I can't just flip a switch and all of a sudden start feeling deeply and 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 make God's will my preference instead of. My own preferences. I want to give you a little bit of hope. Because Nehemiah is going to pray this prayer. And there are three things in this prayer that I think will help us to grow. And becoming the type of Christian community that God is calling for. That we could become like Nehemiah. He prays in verse 5 and he says, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant. And steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. See, if we're going to grow in our compassion and be like Nehemiah, we've got to have a right view of God. That's what he's doing. He's he's praying and saying, God, this is who you are. God, I know who you are. This This is who you are. Think about Israel's situation. The situation that their nation is facing right now. Man, there's not a lot of evidence that God is faithful. I mean, the people are dispersed. They're exiled all across the land. There's brokenness. The land is lost. There's other people that that are possessing the land. And you notice his prayer. Despite the suffering they're going through, he says, God, you are faithful. God, you are good. God, you are a a covenant-keeping God. You have not abandoned us. You gave us the promise that you will never leave us nor forsake us. And that is true. Even when we're hurting God, we know you are with us. In fact, he prays again in verse 8 and 9 and says, Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost, Most parts of heaven. From there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. See, Nehemiah is not reminding God of these things like God forgot them. He's reminding himself of these things, of the truth of who God is. That God, you are a forgiving God. And if we turn back to you, that you will gather us back together and we will be your people and you will give us that land again. See, if we're going to grow, we've got to have a right view about God. We've got to understand who He is and what He's about. Yes, don't don't smoke, don't chew, don't go where the girls should do. Yes, that's important. But it's not as important as us understanding the heart of God to being a God of love, a God of grace, a God of compassion, a God that that goes into the the, the lives of the people around them, the the woman at the well, the woman caught in adultery man, there's grace. That's what he leads with. He leads with grace. Is that what we lead with? Or do we lead with, well, let me tell you what you're doing wrong. Got to have a right view of God. The second thing to grow in our compassion and the heart of God is, is look at what he says in verse 6 and 7. He says, let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open to hear the prayer of your servant, that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. He says, even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you have commanded your servant Moses. See, second thing that you see in Nehemiah's prayers, he has a right view of himself. Understands, man, I'm broken. Understands, man, we, we are sinners. We're not, we are sinful. He prays and confesses the sin on behalf of the nation as well as his own sin and his, his own family. See, when we have a, a right view of who God is, it leads naturally for us to, to, to reveal the depths of our own brokenness and our own sinfulness. Specifically, Nehemiah is talking about, related to the covenant, how Israel and how the people have not been faithful to covenant. But I want you to recognize that that Nehemiah knows himself. He knows his sinful bent. He knows his 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 desire to be selfish and to focus on himself and not be concerned with the heart of God. See, we like to we like to have this positive thinking where we think, "Man, I'm not that bad of a person. Like, I, I'm not I'm, I'm a good person," you know. And we don't want to ponder our own brokenness. We don't want to ponder our selfishness and our foolishness and the things that we do that are contrary to the will of God. We don't like to take sin seriously. We don't like to think of ourselves in that light. We want to think, well, I'm a good person. But here's Nehemiah saying, man, God, I'm a sinner. I'm going to confess my sin before you. I'm going to confess the sin of all of us before you. The thing I love about Nehemiah confessing his sin, oftentimes people look at the book of Nehemiah as a book on leadership. It is. Nehemiah is a tremendous leader that we can learn from, and we will learn from. And the picture of Nehemiah confessing his sin See, true leadership is not so much being aware of your talents that you have that other people don't have. True leadership is is, is realizing the fact that we are weak, that we are capable of sin just like anybody else. See, the moment a leader begins to think, man, I'm I'm not that much of a sinner. I'm I'm a great person. man, isn't that when they become open to sin? And isn't that when sin ruins the camp and ruins the leader's life? Ruins their influence, ruins their position of leadership. Men, we've got to have a right view of ourselves. That we are sinful, that we are broken, and we are dependent upon God. That's third. Third thing in this prayer: that if we're going to grow in our compassion and grow in the heart of God, is that we will recognize that we are loved and we are redeemed by the grace of God. He says in verse 10. He says, they are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. Nehemiah is pointing back to the days of slavery in Egypt. Reminding his people, hey listen, we weren't saved because we're great. We weren't brought out of slavery because uh, we were so smart and because we were such good people. No, it was the grace of God that God redeemed them and God brought them out of slavery in Egypt you tie that into us. Man, we look at redemption a little differently. We recognize that despite our sinfulness, despite our, our rebellion, despite our, our, our human nature that always wants to make life revolve around me, we know John 3.16, that God so loved the world, despite our sinfulness, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. See, we are redeemed because of the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. We're not a Christian because we're a good person. We're not a Christian because we believe in God. We're not a Christian because we go to church. We're a Christian because we trust that Jesus died in our place. And our sin went with him to the grave. And that when Jesus rose from the grave, that assured that God approved of that sacrifice. That we could be made right with God. That God no longer views our sin. He views the righteousness that Jesus gave to us. This is what it means to be redeemed. And this is what Nehemiah is saying. Hey, if you want to grow in this, if you want to be have the heart of God and be compassionate and be empathetic, listen, you've got to have a right view of who God is. You've got to understand what He's about. Not what He's against. You've got to understand what He's about. You've got to understand and have a proper view of yourself. We are sinful. Even when we don't want to be, we, we make it about ourselves. And thirdly, you've got to understand the grace that God has given you and redeeming you. That we can have a new story. That we can be a new creation. That God can change our life. Because listen, when those three things happen, man, that's, that's where God begins to use us. God begins to allow us to enter into other people's stories. Because listen, if those three things aren't present, listen, I want you to listen to this very closely. See, if your kids are godly because you're so awesome, if your kids are righteous because you're so awesome and you're such a good parent and you're such a good person, and not because God has been gracious to you, you won't have the ability to show compassion to anybody that has a wayward child. Because if they just would have done what you would have done, man, their kid would have been just as godly as you. See how that works? If you are financially set, not because God has been gracious to you, but because you have worked harder than anybody else, you've set yourself apart from others, because you've, you've earned that money, because you've made the right decisions, you've made the right investments. If you are financially set, not because of God, but because of what you have done, instead of feeling indebted to the grace of God, you're going to feel proud and arrogant. It is going to be impossible for you to show empathy and compassion to somebody struggling through poverty. See, the more that we make ourselves the author and the perfecter of all things, the more that we think our blessings in our lives come because we're so awesome, Because of us, instead of being the grace of God, the more impossible it is for us to actually have the heart of God. To have empathy towards others who are struggling. Why? Because we're too friggin' awesome. We're too friggin' awesome. And if people would just be like me, then they would have the blessings that I have. Instead of recognizing, man, everything that you've been given is from the grace of God. That's why we've got to have this right view of God. We've got to have the right view of ourselves. We've got to understand the grace and redemption through Jesus Christ. Because when we do that, that allows us to have the heart of God. To recognize, man, this person needs grace and love. And I know because I've received it myself. I'm going to close and ask us to do something different today. We don't always do this at Restoration Church. But as I look at the story of Nehemiah, I see him dropping to his knees and praying and saying, God, help me have a right view of you. God, help me have a right view of myself. God, help me to understand that I've been redeemed, not because I'm awesome, but because of the grace of God. And as we have those things right, then we begin to to have the heart of God. Say, God, would you open my eyes to the areas around me, the people around me who are suffering? God, that I can do something about.